For most people, Las Vegas is a neon-lit oasis. Where they go to escape from their day-to-day lives. To gamble in world-class casinos. To eat meals prepared by celebrity chefs. Or to enjoy performances from the biggest names in entertainment. But if you scratch the surface just a little bit, you'll find the stories that never made it onto the postcards. The stories that remain hidden behind the glitz and glamour of the Vegas Strip. It's the podcast that goes in-depth on the darker side of Vegas history. Sin City Stories. Vegas True Crime. From murder. To robbery. To arson. To bombings. Sin City Stories Vegas True Crime will take you far behind the headlines of the tales you're familiar with and bring you the never-before-heard stories that helped to shape the city of Las Vegas. Sin City Stories. Vegas True Crime. The sordid tales behind the stranger-than-fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Get more info at SinCityStoriesPod.com and follow Sin City Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Hi, strangers. This is part two of the Cam family story, so if you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you pause now and do so, because this tale only gets more complicated from here. For a quick recap, in part one I told you the story of Kim and David Cam, and their two children, Brad and Jill. David Cam had recently left the Indiana State Police to work for his uncle, Sam Lockhart, and Kim had a long and successful career at an accounting firm. While on the surface, the Cams seemed like a perfect church-going family, David was a known womanizer who had multiple affairs while being married to Kim. Part one ended with David Cam coming home from playing basketball at his local church gym with some friends and family to find his wife, Kim, his seven-year-old son, Brad, and his five-year-old daughter, Jill, murdered in his garage. The horrific murders rocked the tight-knit community of Georgetown, Indiana, in which many of David Cam's family lived. Hours after the memorial that was held in Kim and the children's honor, David Cam was arrested for the murder of his family. Now, after listening to part one, it isn't hard to believe that David Cam was the police's first suspect. But what we will come to find about this story is that it's far from simple. And three separate trials will reveal that another man's DNA was present in the garage that fateful night. Lock your doors and listen closely. This is Stranger in the House. When David Cam left his house to be questioned by police the night of the murders, the officers at the crime scene were just getting started with their investigation. 36-year-old Kim and 5-year-old Jill had been shot in the head, while 7-year-old Brad was shot through the chest. The murder weapon was not found anywhere in the house nor nearby. While Kim was on the ground in a pool of her own blood, Jill was still slumped over in the back seat of her mom's car and Brad had been pulled out by David and laid on the floor of the garage. David said that he thought Brad could be saved, so he pulled him out to attempt CPR. 
Now, the story of David trying to resuscitate Brad quickly becomes questionable to the detectives at the scene of the crime. Detective Sam Sarkison said that he became suspicious of David's story because, quote, usually if you have someone come up to a crime scene and they talk about rendering air or being involved in a crime scene, then there are footprints. I didn't see any footprints. There were some odd things regarding clothing found at the crime scene as well. Kim's pants and shoes had been removed, and she had a smear of blood above the waistline of her underwear. Her shoes were found neatly placed on the hood of the car, and her pants were on the floor next to her, her left hand resting on top of them, suggesting either her hand had been placed there, or the pants were removed after she was killed and then placed under her hand. Brad Cam was laying on the floor where David said he placed him, but under his body was a men's sweatshirt. On the inside of the collar was the word backbone written in marker. The sweatshirt was taken with Brad's body by the medical examiner, but was not tested for DNA right away. Pathologists found that Kim had died from a gunshot wound to the head from an undetermined range, but there was no gunpowder residue or soot on her. According to Dr. Donna Stewart from the Kentucky Medical Examiner's Office, the bullet took a slightly downward angle. Several abrasions and bruises were found on her upper body, suggesting a struggle. And there was a blood smear above the waistband of her underwear, on both the front and back sides. But there was no evidence of rape or sexual assault. The bullet that had killed Brad had entered his left shoulder, severed his spinal cord, and exited his right shoulder. The examiner believed that Brad was further away from the shooter because the residue pattern was not as dense as what was found on Jill, who was shot in the head. Jill's examination revealed some troubling information. There were contusions and abrasions found on the inner folds of Jill's vaginal area, which would later be confirmed by two pediatricians to be consistent with sexual abuse. The injuries were unlikely caused by a fall or an accident, according to the doctors, suggesting that Jill was molested, not at the time of the murder, but days or hours before. And the prime suspect for that molestation was the same person that was suspected to have committed these gruesome murders, David Cam. David Cam's trial started on January 14, 2002. There were two parts to the prosecution's case against David Cam. First, they wanted to show the jury that David's many affairs and being accused of molesting Jill would be enough motive to kill his family. Second, that the evidence collected at the scene of the crime suggested that David was lying about the night's events. Nearly a dozen women testified to Cam's character describing sexual encounters with him or instances where he propositioned them. On the stand, David acknowledged that he had these affairs and that he was not a perfect man, but denied that he would ever kill his family because of it. Now, while Jill's molestation may come as a shock, Kim was actually aware that Jill was having pain in her vaginal area before the murder. Earlier that year, five-year-old Jill began to complain to Kim about some soreness in her vaginal area, when Kim checked the area, she said it looked red like she had a diaper rash. 
Kim discussed the issue with her mother Janice, and they thought it might be some sort of rash, possibly caused by some new soaps or detergent, but they couldn't figure it out. A few weeks later, Jill's dance teacher noticed her crying and holding her vaginal area after a recital. When Kim came to pick Jill up, she found out that Jill had seemed to be in great pain, but the why was a complete mystery to her. A former medical examiner was brought up by the defense during the trial, and they said that the injuries found during the autopsy could have been a straddle injury, such as from a kick to the area. But there was no record of an injury that we know of, and Kim had been trying to figure out this issue for a while. Two different pediatric experts testified that from their expertise, the contusions and abrasions were made in a purposeful way, and that Jill showed signs of sexual abuse. If you remember in part one, some women had said that David Cam had made strange comments about young girls, such as assuming one of the women he was kissing in his cop car was 16 when she was actually in her 20s. While these comments are creepy, they don't prove that he molested his daughter. But the main problem with the accusation that David was Jill's molester was that the prosecution had no proof that David was the one who abused her. David claimed that he had no idea about Jill's vaginal pain, and the pathologist said that by looking at her injuries, she was likely abused hours before the murder, which to the defense suggested it wasn't David because he was at work for the majority of the day before the murder. Aside from the motive, the prosecution brought in a blood pattern expert, Robert Stites, to prove that the clothes the police had collected off of David the night of the murders suggested that David was the one who shot his family. Stites testified that the eight specks of Jill's blood found on David Camp's t-shirt could have only gotten there from gunshot blowback. Cam's attorney argued that Jill's blood on his shirt must have been transferred when he reached in the truck for Brad. The defense hired Bart Epstein, a bloodstain expert, and he claimed that the blood splatter on David's shirt occurred because he reached over Jill's body to grab his son. Epstein demonstrated this with wigs containing blood and a shirt similar to the one David was wearing that night to prove it was possible. The autopsies revealed that the time of death was about 8 p.m., which was around the time witnesses at the church said that David sat out a game. The prosecution theorized that Cam left the gym during the only game he sat out, shot his family, and returned before anyone noticed he was gone. The Cam house is only minutes, three miles to be exact, from the church. But it still only leaves a small window for the murder, and David had multiple witnesses testifying that he never left the gym during the game he sat out. All 11 men that had been at the church gym the night of the murders insisted that David had been at the gym the whole time and never left. In part one, I discussed the Georgetown community and how David's family was a very prominent part of the town and church. Remember, the church was founded by David's grandfather, Amos, and David actually lived on Lockhart Road, which was named after his family. And many of the men who were at the basketball game either worked for his uncle, Sam Lockhart, or were a part of David's family. Now, all this to say that I find it personally suspicious that almost everyone who says they saw David never leave the basketball game were heavily entwined with David's family. But at the same time, regardless of their connection to the family, it's doubtful that anyone would want to protect someone who could murder their own wife and kids in cold blood. 
despite the 11 witnesses testifying that David had been at the church during the time of the murder. David Cam was found guilty of murdering his wife and two kids and was sentenced to 195 years in prison on March 14, 2002. But that's not the end of the story because Cam appealed. And two years later, the Indiana Supreme Court overturned the conviction, saying that the state had not adequately proven that his infidelity was motive for murder and that the testimonies from all the women biased the jury. They essentially said, just because he's a cheater doesn't make him a murderer. They also warned the next trial judge that allowing the molestation accusations could lead to another reversal because there was no proof that David Cam had molested his daughter. In November of 2004, a new county prosecutor refiled charges against Cam and announced his office would launch a fresh eyes investigation. During this new investigation, all the evidence was re-examined, and that mysterious sweatshirt that was found under Brad's body was looked at more closely. The sweatshirt was gray and had the word backbone handwritten in the collar and had actually been issued by the Department of Corrections. So why was a prison-issued sweatshirt found under seven-year-old Brad's body? The sweatshirt found under Brad mysteriously didn't belong to anyone in the Cam family, and no one who knew the Cam seemed to know the significance of the word backbone. DNA that didn't match anyone in the family was found on the sweatshirt. And so it was run through CODIS, which, for anyone who doesn't know, is an acronym for Combined DNA Index System. It is a national collection of DNA information that's maintained by the FBI. It allows state and local crime laboratories to store and compare DNA profiles from crime scene evidence and convicted offenders. So when the prosecution ran the DNA on the sweatshirt through CODIS, it actually matched a convicted felon from nearby New Albany. His name was Charles Bonet. And wouldn't you know it, Charles had actually gotten the nickname Backbone in prison. When we talk about this case, especially in reference to the sweatshirt, it is often brought up that the original investigation was not done properly, and there was a miscarriage of justice against David. In the original trial, the sweatshirt was said to have been examined, and they didn't find any matches for the DNA found on the sweatshirt. But at that point, Bonet's DNA would have been in CODIS from his previous arrest, suggesting that the DNA was not actually tested during the first trial. This time, Charles Bonet was not going to fly under the radar. Charles Bonet was born in 1969, and according to an article called Suspended Justice by IDS News, he was an 11-time convicted felon with a foot fetish. In the late 80s, he had been dubbed the Shoe Bandit for assaulting women in Bloomington and stealing their shoes while he was a student at Indiana University. It turns out that Charles had been out on parole during the time of the murders, and lived in a town nearby Cam's home. He had been released from prison just months before the murders after serving 11 years for holding three female Indiana University students hostage at gunpoint in their Bloomington apartment. But that wasn't Bonet's first time terrorizing women. Bonet had quite a rap sheet, and in some cases there was evidence of stalking as well. Some of Bonet's previous victims had reported receiving harassing phone calls for a couple months prior to their attacks, asking them what they were wearing and if they were wearing high-heeled shoes. Bonet previously admitted to the police that he had a foot fetish, 
and this detail was suspicious to David's defense because Kim's shoes were removed and lined up neatly on top of the vehicle amidst the crime scene. When police brought Charles Bonet in for questioning, he denied any involvement in the crime. He said he had never met David Kim and knew nothing of the murders. When asked about the sweatshirt, he said he had donated it to charity. Bonet agreed to take a polygraph, but his answers were determined to be deceptive, meaning he failed. But a failed polygraph was not enough, and he was cleared as a suspect. But then, two weeks later, during this Fresh Eyes investigation, a palm print was discovered on Kim's vehicle. And wouldn't you know it, it matched Bonet's fingerprints. And on March 5th, 2005, Bonet was arrested and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder in the Cam case. So was Bonet some stranger to the Cam family that just went into their garage and committed a triple homicide that included two children? Was he attempting to assault Kim and take her shoes like his other victims and the crime got out of hand? Well, according to Bonet, not exactly. After his arrest, Bonet, in a written statement, said that he met David Cam a couple months before the murders at a local basketball game. Bonet said that he and his team were playing a friendly game against David's. And when David had jokingly taunted Bonet for losing, he responded by saying he was just happy to be playing basketball because he had just gotten out of prison. Bonet said this seemed to pique David's interest, and David started asking him questions about prison and his crimes. But then they just continued with their game. Not much longer after that, Bonet says he ran into David again at a grocery store. Bonet says that David asked him to buy a gun for him, one that couldn't be traced back to David. Bonet allegedly charged $250 for the gun. According to Bonet, the two arranged to meet on the evening of September 28, 2000, the night of the murders. Bonet said he gave David the gun wrapped in his backbone sweatshirt. And David immediately took the gun to the garage and shot his family. Investigators searched for days for the gun that Bonet supposedly gave David, but the murder weapon was never found. Prosecutors argue that David Cam and Bonet worked together and were charged as co-conspirators. They were both charged with three counts of murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Their trials ran simultaneously in January of 2006, in different courtrooms on opposite sides of the state. According to IDS News, the same prosecutor tried both cases, arguing in one courtroom that Cam pulled the trigger, and in another courtroom that Bonet helped. With Bonet's written confession, on January 25, 2006, Charles Bonet was convicted and sentenced to 225 years in prison for the murders. In Bonet's trial, the prosecution didn't have to prove that Bonet had a motive or was the one who pulled the trigger. They just had to prove that both he and Cam were somehow involved with the murders. Now in Cam's trial, the prosecutors this time argued that the man's motive wasn't his infidelity, but Jill's molestation. They brought in two pediatricians to testify that based on the autopsy photos and the diagrams made by the medical examiner, Jill's injuries on her private parts could have happened days before the murders, not hours, 
making a case that it could have been David who had molested her at any point days before the murders. Prosecutors theorized that Jill had told Kim, and Kim threatened to leave. The problem with that accusation is that Kim was dead and could not confirm this theory. Another issue? The 11 witnesses from the basketball game still maintained that David never left the gym that night. But nevertheless, Cam was found guilty again. But just like last time, David appealed, and the Indiana Supreme Court overturned the verdict in June of 2009, ruling that there was no proof that Cam had molested his daughter. And once again, the state prosecution refiled the murder charges against David Cam in December of 2009. David Cam's third trial began in August of 2013, 13 years after the murders. The trial took place at the Boone County Courthouse, two hours north of New Albany, because the defense insisted that there was no way they would get an impartial jury so close to Cam's hometown. In accordance with the first two appeals, the judge prohibited any testimony about David Cam's affairs or the molestation allegations. He wouldn't allow the defense to mention Bonet's foot fetish either, which had become a distracting and sensationalized fact in the media. This time, prosecutors focused on Jill's blood on David's t-shirt and money from a life insurance policy that was recently taken out by Kim as a motive. The defense argued that David's first guilty sentence was a result of a botched investigation and a prosecutor with tunnel vision. He said that the original investigators never bothered to take fingerprints, which would have included Bonet's, because they already thought David was guilty. And it turned out that the blood splatter expert that was hired for the original investigation, who then later testified in the first trial, was not actually an expert. Robert Stites was a crime scene photographer who worked under the direction of an actual blood splatter expert discrediting his testimony in the first trial that David would have only gotten the blood on his shirt from the blowback of shooting his daughter. The defense also once again brought forward the 11 witnesses who maintained that David had never left the gym the night of the murder. Now, if you remember, these 11 men were all friends and family of David Cam, but it still seemed unlikely to the defense that these men would lie for David all these years. Charles Bonet testified against Cam during this third trial. Bonet maintained his story about meeting Cam at a basketball game and eventually acquiring an untraceable gun for him. Bonet said that as he handed Cam the gun wrapped in his sweatshirt, Kim pulled into the family's garage. According to Bonet, that's when Cam followed her up the driveway and the couple started arguing. Bonet says he heard a pop, then a little boy yelling, Daddy! followed by another pop, and then a third pop. Bonet said that Cam emerged from the garage and turned the gun on him and tried to shoot, but it jammed. Cam ran towards the house and Bonet chased after him into the garage, but Cam disappeared inside. In the pursuit, Bonet says he ran and tripped over Kim's shoes. Bonet stated that he picked the shoes up and placed them on top of the car. He then leaned against the vehicle to look at Brad and Jill, who were still inside, deceased. He explained that this is why his handprint was found on the vehicle. David's defense attorney went on to paint a very different picture of the night, with Bonet lying in wait for Kim Cam. He said, Bonet probably heard Kim come home 
and accosted her. He mentioned that Bonet probably met or at least saw Kim before because he was a frequent customer of Kareem's Meat Market, which was owned by members of Kim's family. He said that he struggled with Kim and then shot her before or after he shot the kids. But the defense never offered a solid explanation as to why his sweatshirt was left at the scene. The prosecution took the idea that it was left as a calling card or by accident and ripped it apart. Quote, what do you think? Mr. Bonet is going to come out of jail, go to somebody's house in Georgetown, brutally murder three people, and then say, oh, I think I'll take off my sweatshirt that I got from the Department of Corrections and lay it down here by the boy. Does that make any sense to anybody? It doesn't to me. Charles Bonet's girlfriend at the time of the murder, Mala Singh Mattingly, also testified in Cam's third trial. Her DNA was later found on the backbone sweatshirt as well as Bonet's. She said on the night of the murder, Bonet left around 6 p.m. and said he was going to help a buddy. She testified that after she went to bed that night, Bonet returned after midnight and he was described as excited. He was worked up and he was breathing heavy, Mattingly said. And it was then when she saw him unwrap a gun to show it to her, which he told him to put away. Now, this seems to conflict with Bonet's story that David had the gun before he ran away from Bonet. Mattingly says she also noticed a scrape on his knee. She said that she became scared and told Bonet to get out of the house. The following morning, Mattingly said that Bonet wanted her, his mom, and him to all watch the news coverage on television. It was then, Mattingly recalled, that Bonet and his mother got into an argument and she left the room to take a shower and change. When she returned, everyone had left. And two weeks later, Mattingly had ended her relationship with Bonet. This third trial also saw the introduction of new DNA evidence that wasn't presented in the first two trials. The defense brought in Dr. Richard Akelenboom, who testified that he found something called touch DNA consistent with Bonet's in several places on clothing on both Jill and Kim Cam. According to Elkenboom, Bonet's touch DNA was found on Kim's underwear and the arm of her shirt, above an abrasion on her arm thought to be the result of her struggle with her killer. It was also found on Kim's broken off fingernail and on the stomach of Jill Cam's shirt. These results seem to discredit Bonet's assertion that he never touched the victims. But touch DNA isn't considered very reliable in the eyes of the court and is often referred to as a pseudoscience. It takes samples that contain a mixture of DNA from surfaces touched by an unknown number of people and makes a guess to the probability that a criminal suspect's DNA is among the haystack of unknowns that the lab is examining. The technique has been criticized for high rates of false positives due to contamination. For example, fingerprint brushes used by crime scene investigators can transfer trace amounts of skin cells from one surface to another, leading to inaccurate results. Because of the risk of false positives, it's more often used by the defense to help exclude a suspect rather than used as proof that someone committed the crime. Dr. Elkenboom also testified that the blood splatter on David's shirt could have come from when he leaned over Jill to grab and resuscitate Brad. The jury of this third trial deliberated for 10 hours. And in the end, David Cam was found not guilty. 
The jurors said that ultimately, the deciding factor was the 11 witnesses who said that David was at the gym with them and never left that night. They found it hard to believe that David had convinced 11 people to lie for him and maintain that lie for over a decade. On October 24, 2013, 13 years after the murders of his wife and kids, David Cam walked free. However, the jury's decision did not change the minds of Kim's parents, who have always believed that David was the one who murdered their daughter and grandchildren. There's room for four burial plots where Kim and the children are buried, but David Kim's name was removed from the gravestone long ago by Kim's parents. They didn't want him there. Janice Wren, Kim's mother, knows that Kim has full rights to the plot and assumes he'll put his nameplate back on the gravestone eventually. But at this point, she says, she has turned the issue to God. In 2016, Dr. Richard Elkenboom, who testified in David's third trial about the blood splatter and touch DNA implicating Charles Bonet as the attacker rather than David, was discredited as an expert witness by a Denver judge. A Denver prosecutor got him to admit that he had no direct DNA extraction or analysis experience, that he operates a lab that has not been accredited, and that he personally failed his basic proficiency tests in 2011 and 2012. And he admitted that he was self-trained in running DNA profiles. Alcomboom had testified in other high-profile cases, including Timothy Masters and Casey Anthony. In addition to David Cam, both of those people were acquitted of murder charges. Despite this discovery, David Cam can never be charged with the murder of Kim, Brad, and Jill because of our laws in the U.S. against double jeopardy. Charles Bonet remains in prison for the Cam family murders and still maintains that he was not the one who pulled the trigger that night. In the nearly 22 years since the murders, Bonet's story about what happened that night has changed almost five times. But he says it was all in an effort to stay out of the mix and avoid another stint in prison. He maintains to this day that his testimony from the third trial is true. He says that David Cam was the one who killed his family, not him. As of April 2022, Cam was awarded more than $5 million in settlements from various lawsuits against the investigators of his case. That amount includes a $4.6 million settlement reached in his federal wrongful arrest lawsuit. So, if David Cam didn't kill his family that night, and in the eyes of the law, he did not, there are still so many unanswered questions regarding this case. Was Jill being molested? And if so, by who? Where is the justice for that little girl? Why was Kim so anxious to visit her friend in Florida just as the kids were starting school? And what did she mean when she told her friend, history is repeating itself? And another question is, why was Charles Bonet's sweatshirt at the crime scene? Did he really take it off and then just forget it after committing a triple homicide? Or is what Charles Bonet is saying true? that the gun was wrapped in the sweatshirt and given to David to use. And the sad thing is, we'll probably never get the answers. So strangers, what do you think? Was Charles Bonet just a stranger acting alone and the right man is in jail for this heinous crime? 
Or do you agree with Kim's parents, who believes that it was always David behind the crime? Regardless of what we believe, David Kim is a free man, and he can never be charged with these murders again. What we do know is there was a stranger in the Cam house the night of the murders. The question is, did he work alone? Or was he invited in? This episode was written by Alexa Morrissey, researched by Victoria Cox, and produced by Michael Morrissey, John Scassia, and Heidi Schwerman. Stranger in the House is a Boy Wonder production. All our sources for this episode will be linked in the bio and on our website, strangerinthehouse.com. But a special thanks to the book, One Deadly Night, A State Trooper, Triple Homicide, and a Search for Justice by John Glatt, and the IDS article, Suspended Justice by Katie Mettler. You can follow us at strangerinthehouse.com, at underscore strangerinthehouse on Instagram and TikTok, and at underscore strangerpod on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and stay safe, strangers. Introducing Jay is for Justice podcast. Join Jay as she fearlessly dives into the intriguing world of true crime. With a sprinkle of humor, Jay navigates through the darkest cases while uplifting our supportive community. Tune in to Jay is for Justice for captivating narratives, thought-provoking discussions, and exclusive updates. Subscribe now and join us on the journey through the mysteries of true crime. Don't miss out. Hit subscribe and let's explore together.